Hey, hey, good afternoon, everyone. It's Sen here, live from Canada, Ontario, London, in that opposite order, I guess, London, Ontario, Canada. And we're here today on Meeple Syrup with Chris Leader. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Great, how are you? I'm doing fine, and with Peter. Hello. Peter of the blue hair. Um, so today we're gonna be discussing a model that was proposed like in 2011. It's called the Eight Kinds of Fun, and I'll put a link up later. Um, and it was designed by uh, C. Murder. I'm not sure who he is. Let's see if I can find his actual name. It's down here somewhere. Um, we'll find out who it is later. But he made these kind of insights into what were the eight types of fun that he found in digital media, games, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to take a look at that today. And we're going to tie that into a couple things with what Chris and Peter are doing currently on Kickstarter and other games in the gaming world that we know and love. So before we start, Chris, what have you been doing lately with your company that you work for and all that kind of stuff? All right. So um, as the director of fun over here at Calliope Games, um, it's been busy, busy, busy. We're actually preparing the next three Titan series games to release this summer. So we're talking about the likes of Eric Lang and Mike Elliott and James Ernest. So some incredible designs. Um, we're polishing the rule sets, getting the art and the graphic design. So every day is just new cool stuff flashing across my computer and I have to be like, oh, that's cool. Um, and we have a Kickstarter running right now from a game by a gentleman uh, you may have heard of named Scott Alms. Uh, he's got a game called Dicey Peaks, which is a uh, tile flipping, dice rolling, push your luck up the mountain, avoid yetis type of affair. So great, um, great game, just like Calliope games are always kind of gateway filler games, and it's up on Kickstarter now. Perfect, perfect. And Peter, what about you? What's, what's going on with you? So it is currently 3 p.m. At 6 p.m., my currently running Kickstarter ends. And so I am uh, ur urgently trying not to just refresh the page right now and instead focus <laughs> on this conversation. But uh, it's called The Lady and the Tiger. It is an 18-card bluffing game for one to six players. And it is gorgeous. And it's at, uh, I think we just hit 1,100% funded. So it's very nearly done. So that, that, is, that is what's happening with me. Excellent. Congratulations. Who's the, designer, who's the designer behind that game? So there's actually three games in the box. Yeah. Uh, I designed one of them. Ken Mayer, who I think lives yeah. right near you, uh, designed one of them. Not No, he lives up in uh, Collingwood. Right, which is, which is around the north, corner from north of me and yeah. therefore close to Way north you. of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not north of you. I'm south of you. Oh, I, I don't know Canada at all. It's terrible. Uh, and, and, and somehow you're a game artisan of Canada. It's, 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 uh, I'm, I'm good at the game artisan part. Right, right. Of, not I really specialize in all a, a usually lost game artisan of Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the third variant is designed by the one, the only J.R. Honeycutt. Good. Excellent. So there's a lot of bang in the box um, oh, yes. for, the, for the $9, I think it was. $9 for the game. And it's uh, it, the artist is X Disney. Her name's Tanya Walker. She lives in Tasmania, which yeah, is south of you. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. And, yeah no, the, the game is stunning. Now, uh, just a quick question. Is she also your general art director? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she, she's been full-time with Jellybean for the last four or five months now. So she's been working on The Lady and the Tiger. We've got some other games up and coming. Uh, we actually just added notebooks to The Lady and the Tiger campaign. So you can <laughs> take that. out yeah. in front of a notebook, and people are going wild for it in a very exciting way. Well, I think that's a great, uh, a great thing. I mean, I always like interesting and novel but functional um, 
you know, Kickstarter stretch goals that are yeah, just interesting. Yeah. I like that kind of for, stuff. For me, the rule is if, if I wouldn't use it, I'm not going to make it. So every game we make is, one, is a game that I would play and every like cool little thing we add, I'm like, I want that. That is a thing that I want to exist in my life. Right, exactly, right? Otherwise, why why do it? Yeah. Um, I read something really neat that she put the other day on, there's a thread, uh, you might have been part of it as well, where we were talking about uh, diversity in game art. And that's when I first found that she was your art director. I said, oh, that's who it is. I uh, don't even she, know about this thread. I want to read yeah, this now. <laughs> it was a thread about a person who didn't want to um, follow the magical Negro trope uh, by giving uh, a person of color in his game magical powers. And then it kind of evolved and somewhat devolved from there as well as those threads go. But then she put something in that was really, really just kind of blunt matter of fact and to the point that says hey why don't you just ask somebody who is yeah well that, that's what we did we, we had a game uh, and i realized we haven't even started our topic and i'm already tangent no, no, okay. uh we, we had a game called tomb of doom and we actually end up end up pulling that game it was it was a nice little game that wasn't going to work for our for our lineup uh and we had the, the, the sort of the joke of it was that everyone had a different name based off the Indiana Jones naming structure. Right. So we had Dubai, De, sorry, Dubai Derby. We had Tasmania Evans. And then for the American, we wanted something as close to Indiana Jones as we could. So we went with Dakota Brown. Right. And then totally separately to that, she'd drawn Dakota Brown as an African-American. And we were like, is that okay? Like, can we have someone whose last name is Brown who is Brown? Uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of examples of like that. That is the thing that happens, like James Brown, et cetera. And we debated it in-house for, for a week before going, you know what, let, let's put it out there. Let's ask people who are of color. And every single person of color we asked was like, that's obviously fine. I don't know why you're freaking out about this. So yeah, that, that's very much the, the ethos that we use as well. If we're like, look, we're not sure about this. or like, this might be brushing up against the line. We just ask someone of the affected group or as many yeah. people as we can really. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And I think the same goes for a lot of things with, with inclusion and, you know, gender and stuff about that in gaming, like ask the people who are most affected. Yeah, exactly. We'll get a little further that way than a bunch of us talking about it. Yeah. We're not being the ones. Affected. Look, as, as a straight white guy, I feel like I am entitled to speak on behalf of all minorities, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. We'll have to edit that out. Uh, Okay, cool. Let's get to the topic at hand, which is the eight types of fun. So the eight types of fun, if you look for it, just Google it, eight types of fun, and you'll find a bunch of stuff here. The outline, oh, let's actually send that link out to people, if I can, on chat. Let's see. Yeah, it actually worked for the first time. Um, so the eight types of fun. The first one is sensation. Sensation means games as sense pleasure. So evoking emotions, sensations uh, caused by the manipulation of pieces. Uh, just um, for context, this list yeah. was written for and about video games, but I think it it, yes. it it applies to games as in general. Yeah, yeah, and gaming experiences. So I mean, you could extend it to um, horror, uh, to escape rooms, to those types of entertainment Sport experiences. Even. Yeah, sports, um, movies, so media consumption, but games yeah. specifically for us today. Uh, fantasy. So fantasy is games as make-believe. Uh, narrative is games as an unfolding story. Challenge is a game as an obstacle course. Uh, fellowship is using a game as a social framework. Discovery is games as uncharted territory. Expression, using the game as a soapbox to discuss and to get your points across or to create. Uh, and then submission, which is games as a mindless pastime. We just keep doing it and do it and do it, and you you 
just get caught up in the flow of it. Um, and so we can look at all of those things, those those eight little factors of fun, and then let's let's break them down and maybe uh, give an example from your own catalog, from your company's catalog. Uh, your current Kickstarter, where it hits that mark, or from your favorite games. So, Chris, why don't we start with Sensation? So, Sensation is games that sense pleasure. What to you does that mean? Unpack it a bit, and then give me an example of one game that you think exemplifies that to a T. You would start off with me, with the yeah. one that I'm having trouble pinning <laughs> down, of course. Um, See, it's interesting when when it talks about this, it, it talks about manipulation of sight, sound, and pace of a game, um, mm. and and horror games building up sensation. And so, to a certain extent, you know, games games can have a plot. But I, I think of some of the more modern day games, you know, the legacy games and things like that, that that kind of take you along for a ride, and they absolutely evoke certain um, sensations at key points in the game to really kind of, you know, you get you get complacent with the game going a certain way, and then suddenly there's a right turn. Now, we get a little rough here because if someone hasn't played Legacy, you don't want to say, oh, this happens. But, you know, that's, when I think about sensation and being able to actually, you know, pull that at, at key moments, I think, you know, the Legacy games have done well with that. Mm -hmm. um, now, what about the whole ripping up of cards during Legacy? Yeah, that's definitely... That's definitely a sensation that that people uh, have a, a very strong reaction to one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So I, <laughs> I think um, that's certainly a sensation, especially when it's when it's something in one of those games that's that's plotted that you have to rip up a card that you find really, really that you got really attached to, and you realize you have to rip it up. Not only in the game do you not have it anymore, but as a gamer, <laughs> as someone who who just, you protect your stuff, right? There's sleeves and there's, you know, you have a shelf and you keep things nice and neat. Yep. This is something that's really reaching into people's psychology and saying you need to literally destroy something uh, that you're playing with. And that's, yeah. that's definitely going against the grain for a lot of gamers out yeah. there. And it, it definitely tweaks on the whole loss aversion. It tweaks on the emotionality and making the consequences real. And so that's really important. Peter, what about you? What hits on sensation for you? So this this one is actually, I think, uh, perhaps the most interesting of all of them because I, I, I worry sometimes that board games underestimate this one. And uh, one of my favorite games of all time is Scythe. And I think Scythe actually nails the sensation on about three or four different levels in that the the, the art is gorgeous as as we all know the art is just sure. incredible the minis are just tactile they're just nice and right to yeah. hold and and then and, and so th those are the two main ways in which scythe i think creates it can be easily argued that scythe is not the greatest game of all time but i think it is one of the greatest gaming experiences of all time and designers particularly i think tend to underestimate the experiential factor and overestimate the mechanical factor and I think that's why Scythe, uh, I don't know, in my experience, a lot of people within the industry are like, Scythe, it's not that good. And I'm like, no, it, it, you're just not looking at the whole picture. <laughs> right. I think there's like a, the top down versus the bottom up approach to game design and construction and destruction as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm on the camp of, you know, I'm not a fan of Scythe as a, as a game experience, 
but there are definitely pieces of it like you look at it and you go oh and that's where that that little cube go and oh that cube fits perfectly in yeah this. like exactly right? the cube that fitting into the awesome. board yeah. and, and that's one of the advantages that jamie stegmaier has of being the designer slash company owner guy in that mm. he can he can control the entire experience in mm. the same way as apple does etc and people are like apple not that good but it's not just about the 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 quality of mechanics it's about the experience um the the other game that i think you, we have to mention for sensation I've not played, and I don't know how to pronounce. It's called uh, Volvo Shatter. <laughs> yeah, Connect Four. The clunking <laughs> noise that they make is so satisfying. It actually, it, like, it, I, it is. I mean, like, I I get a sense of satisfaction when I hit a pool ball correctly because I, I can and, hear and, it, right? And at the end of the game, you move the thing, and yeah, they all clunk down. I know you were kidding, but that's actually a really great yeah, example. You know what? I, I, I'm going to go ahead and retroactively say I wasn't kidding, and I was making a very <laughs> point right there. What were you going to say? The game, I was, the game I was thinking of, I think it's pronounced Vold Schattenspiel. Okay. It is a German game from the 70s or 80s, okay. in which it's it's a one verse many. So most people are these little uh, these little goblins or trolls. Yeah. One person is the giant trying to hunt them down. You play it in a dark room oh. with a single candle lit. Oh, okay, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I do and and so there's all these like 3D obstacles on the board that the candle. Yes. And so as a troll, you have to hide behind these things. The troll, the, the giant spends most of their time with their eyes shut. And when they open their eyes, they have I think it's 15 seconds to try to find the trolls. But because they have to adjust to the new light and because it's so dark, and so like in terms of just pure sensation. I think that game, like, I, I think it's hard to go past that one in terms of, of pure, like, fun of sensation. Apparently, like, as a game, it's not that great, but the, ex yeah. again, the experience is just incredible. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, what you, you hit on something I was thinking when you said one versus many. You know, we can think of sensation as, you know, tactile sensation. You can think of it as, you know, emotions that are evoked and things like that. But as a kid, I think I got the most um, satisfaction out of playing Scotland Yard yeah, because yeah, of that yeah. idea that you were all working together. This was before my little tiny brain knew anything about co-ops or anything like that. But the idea that you were working against one person and this person was, you know, trying to outsmart the others and stay one step ahead. Yeah. There was something about that to me, even at a young age that I understood it, it set that game apart from the regular, you know, classics. And, and it was just something different. So that sensation meant something and stuck with me all through the years. The, the tension, right? The tension. Yes. Being Spectre caught Ops. on the edge. Yeah, like uh, the, the game Spectre Ops and Plaid Hat is, uh, yeah, it, it fits that same niche. When I'm oh, playing, yeah. Spectre like, I'm Ops. away, I am just pumped with adrenaline. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm playing hide and seek, despite the fact that we're sitting at a board moving pieces around. Yeah. Uh, it's incredible. And so, yeah, sensation is something with Jellybean Games, which is my company, is, 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 almost the focus like uh, i was saying our art director tanya she's she's ex-disney she's incredible and we try to make every game like thick cards and gorgeous art and mm -hmm. also very good games but we're really trying to hit those uh, that that's that sensation is fun yeah if you can draw people into a game right from the beginning you know that's the one of the first things i learned when i started working for calliope was like when you open Suro and there's rice paper there and there's yeah. like the rules are kind of like a scroll and everything is laid out just nicely it just brings you into the game. It's more than just pulling cardboard off of cardboard and playing something, but it brings you into it. So that's it's certainly something that I think as, as a publisher that you, you really have to be cognizant of is that people people really appreciate that stuff. Well, yeah. also as, as a designer, like uh, I, I'm not saying this because sense here, junk art is genuinely just one of my <laughs> favorite games and it's, 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 sense, it's tactile fun. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
but not but not that fun. Come on, let's not inflate his ego. Anymore. <laughs> well, I was gonna. It's, I was it's gonna tactile, say tactile fun and mechanical drudgery. Is <laughs> yes. There you go. It is the most. It is the most uh, fun, adequate game I've ever played. <laughs> That's that. I'm gonna put that on the back of the box next time. There you That's go. Awesome. Big on the, the most fun, adequate game you'll ever play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fanaticate. Fanaticate. That sounds like fun, that sounds like a game that Rob Davio would make. Fanaticate. Quickly, I gotta, I gotta trademark that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Copyright. Um. What I was going to say, and it's what Jonathan is saying on the feed, was Dread. Have you played Dread ever? It's a uh, role-playing game, but I, it uses the Jenga Tower. The Jenga Tower? Yeah, no, I, I have not. How, do, how can I can I see the feed? I don't know how this works. Oh, I it's in the um, the live chat, so I don't know how you guys get to the live chat. Sorry to, to, to uh, no, ask okay. this halfway through. Uh, I'll work it out while you, while you continue. Let me you see figure it out, let me know, too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Daryl and everybody usually pops into the live chat as well. So there's a way to get to the live chat. But Dread is a game where you're role-playing. It's usually a horror theme. And when you do something risky, the GM will ask you to take a pull from the tower. And he might ask you to make multiple pulls, depending on how risky the maneuver is. Like, if you're going to walk down the hall, you don't pull anything. If you jump across a chasm, uh, if you're Olympic you know, cavalier athlete, maybe you pull one. If you're a grandmother, maybe you pull seven. But the point is that the feeling of pulling that and putting it on top of the tower is so palpable and so visceral and real that it brings up emotions and fear and anticipation in a way that fits the setting, fits the game perfectly. It's that mesh that is just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And the matter, the consequences matter because if you knock the tower over while you're doing that, your character's dead. So it's a very, very, really, um, it's a really cool experience. If you like role-playing uh, and you don't mind your character dying, uh, you should definitely <laughs> give Dread a chance in terms of sensation. Um, I, 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 just, sorry, just last thing before we move on is I yeah, think yeah. Uh, we, we can't talk about sensation without one word, minis. Oh, good point. There are a couple of people talking about that on the feed as well. So miniatures. Um, uh, we are we are by nature collectors. We are by nature you know tactile people, um, a lot of us, and we like those little fiddly bits and we like things to do with our hands, and they look cool and they have weight to them. So I mean, they, they check off so many sensation yeah. boxes just yeah. in themselves. And, and yeah. even I, I know that painting a miniature isn't technically part of the game, but it's it's a it's a part of the experience, and that's that's a very sensation driven thing. Yeah, for sure. Right? It's visual. It's kinesthetic. It's everything. And you know, you can even people will know when they pick up a miniature. They'll they'll say, "Oh, that's a good weight." You know, that's a good quality. They they have an intrinsic knowledge of the quality of the piece, which actually brings me back to Suro in some ways. That when Suro uh, came out, I can't remember which version I had originally, but I got a. I got like a deluxe kind of version or something, Chris. Is there a deluxe hmm. version? No, I mean there there it used to be um those Wiz Kids and then Calliope. I mean there there are um there are there are European versions of the game that have different components and yeah, some of them have, are a little bit different. Yeah. I have some I have some weightier components. I'm not sure if it was the American or something else, but it just felt different and felt better. It felt better in my yeah. hand. Like well, literally felt good. So one of the things that we've been working on for about two years now is a, is a luxury version of Searle. And okay. one of the things that's there is actually miniature dragons and phoenixes that are going to be used as the pawns. And it's going to have, you know, silk inlay and the, the, I mean, the whole thing is just pimped out, but that's absolutely true. That's something that you take for granted as, Oh, this is nice. When you, when you can feel something that's even better, no matter what the game is, 
it just it immediately makes you feel a little bit more mm-hmm. connected to that mm-hmm. game. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, cool. Uh, we're, oh, go yeah. ahead, Peter. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm like, I, I could talk about sensation all day because literally that is like as for Jelly Bean games that is the thing that we are we are not not focused on at the expense of mechanics or anything like that. But that is probably our our main focus in terms of of how we produce games. And if you're going on Kickstarter, sensation is the best way to upgrade the Kickstarter uh, thing. That, that's a really good point, Peter. That's a really good point. So Rule like, and Make is your, an Australian uh, company. Um, yeah. And, and they, for every Kickstarter, they, they have a metal token for their first player token. It, it, you know, mechanically changes nothing, but and it means that if you get a later copy of the game, you've still got the full game experience, but it's just a way of, of thanking Kickstarter backers without uh, turning off later, back, later purchases of the game. Mm. Yeah, and another thing, I, I think it was your Kickstarter actually, where the first several stretch goals were like thicker box, yeah, you know, that, bigger cards, yeah, right. Yeah, we we just unlocked on Lady and the Tiger uh, the tarot size cards, so right. just the art is going to be bigger. Like <laughs> that, that's that's what the change is. Yeah, and so that's good. Okay, so let's move on to uh, number two, which is fantasy games as make believe. Um, and in this, it says, you know, players often seek power in a game, which gives them something they can't get from real life. What what hits the notes for you on that, Chris? Well, what's funny is, you know, it's called fantasy. So, it, you, you know, your mind immediately goes, oh, orcs and elves and things like that. But honestly, when we talk about players seeking power in something where they can't get it from real life, the first thing that comes to my mind is civilization. Oh, like I think of I think of a Civ game. I think of that whole you know playing God kind of a kind of a thing. So when when you're talking about fantasy and being able to do you know monumentally huge things you couldn't do as a as a regular person, that's that's where my mind goes. And that could be anything. That could be um, you know what was what was it? was it Rune Wars? Was that the original one that was like almost a Civ game but it was fantasy? One um, of those Rune. Rune 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 Wars does that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but just any of that kind of stuff takes my box when it comes to you know games as make-believe and, and seeking power and things like that. And I know there's a million different ways to go, but that's that's the first place my mind went. Okay. Peter, what about you? Uh, for me, this one is sort of... This is this is for me about the marriage of theme and mechanics or even just the choice of interesting themes. Mm-hmm. You can have mechanically the exact same game in which in one you're an office worker and in the other you're a king. And right. I, I think being a king is just going gonna, gonna to hold more appeal. And it even applies to stuff that... Yeah, th- this one I would I would broaden away from, as Chris said, away from just fantasy and more about not simulation or experience exactly, but just that feeling of, of doing stuff that you you don't normally do and mm-hmm. experiencing that. And so uh, there's a game by T.C. Petty III called Xenon Profiteer. And oh, yeah. It is, it is the driest possible game in which it, it's, a, it's a science game. It's not science fiction. It's just science. It's a deck builder in which you process Xenon and try to extract it and then sell it to companies and like it, it's all based on stuff that actually happens every day in real life, and so I would never call that a power fantasy. But at the same time, it's it's interesting and it's engaging to be like, oh, this is how that works. And uh, and and then on the other extreme is is something like um, Dungeons and Dragons. I think would be for me the ultimate example of this, where it's about immersion almost or, or escape. Right. Um, yeah, power fantasy is. I think I think it's covered in in, in how I'm reading this, but I, th- I think this is broader than that. And yeah. so. Yeah, it, it's about interest. Like for board games, it's interesting theme that ties well into the mechanics. I think is 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 what this is. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, look at look at something like Food Chain Magnet. I mean, the game retails for like what one hundred and thirty bucks, and it's yeah. it, to me like I couldn't. I would just bash my head against the wall after a while because <laughs> there's so much minutia to it. But it but it lets you act out this fantasy 
and create this whole empire of, of being a, a fast food, you know, entrepreneur. So I've always wanted to be that. Yeah, I mean, that's don't we all want to be that? Isn't that what we're really all secretly yeah, yeah, hoping yeah. to be someday? Uh, like a franchise, it's an Arby's compared. franchisee. Like one of the best video games is Prison Architect, in which you're the architect of a prison and yes. then you run a prison. And like, no, no little boy has ever grown up being like, someday I want to run a prison. But it's <laughs> it's so compelling and addictive. And I think like Brewcrafters is one of my favorite games. Is the same way you're just you're running a little brewery, and like. I don't want to do that at all, but I will happily escape into that world for an hour <laughs> and, and most efficiently run my brewery and manage my workers. Yeah. Yep. And that's what's so amazing about it's, it's like the, the broad statement. So amazing about the hobby is that those things exist and that people gravitate towards them because there's a game for everybody out there, both in theme and in mechanics. It's crazy. Funny, I was just reading Jonathan's notes on uh, the feed, and he said "Papers, Please," and that's that was one that I was going to bring up as a, a strange fantasy uh, element, make-believe element, uh, as the person who's basically a border crossing guard, right? Mm -hmm. um, one thing I did want to mention, though, is fantasy for my kids. So my kids are 9 and 12 now. Oh, 9 and 13 now. Oops, don't let them hear me say that. Um, <laughs> as you said, that one crossed past the background. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> uh, but one of the things they love to do is lie and cheat and steal. Oh, it yes. Because it's it's tacitly allowed. The social contract is broken and they love that fantasy aspect of, of the game. So their favorite games, <coughs> excuse me, are things like Cheating Moth. And uh, they love, luckily they love Dungeons and Dragons, Rock, Paper, Wizards, because they're just messing with each other all the time. That's what they want to do is get in each other's face. Um, because they're not allowed to, because then I'd get mad at them. But in a game, they're totally allowed to, so they can live out their fantasy of, you know, I want to steal from my brother, I want to lie to my mother, and I want to cheat my dad. And they can do that within the the framework of a game. So I think games have that powerful ability to allow people to do things that they're not allowed to do socially, but they can within the context of a game, because it's, quote-unquote, just a game. Mm -hmm. and that's an interesting thing to look at in that. Um, in that, um, let's move on to narrative. So, narrative. I mean, you know, uh, Chris has already said the L word, so that might just cover it all here. Uh, but narrative games as unfolding story. Having a narrative gives the player a sense of purpose. Not all games have or need a narrative. The narrative can also be thought of as the goals of the game. Sandbox games, even with their endless possibilities, uh, has a user-created narrative. That is, the user tells a story through their actions. Interactive storybooks, point-and-click games, are examples of games based on narratives. Okay, so very much from the digital realm, of course. But let's yeah. talk about that from the analog realm of tabletop games. What gives narrative? What do you find? Which game is for you, Peter? The narrative so game. There's, there's two ways of looking at narrative. One is uh, literally the game tells your story. And so games like Above and Above and Below is like for me the obvious example. Um, or uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights. And and, and that, that's a very specific type. And then Chris also mentioned legacy, but to give some non-legacy examples, Sentinels of the Multiverse has had I think seven or eight expansions and in each one you learn more about the characters who you're playing and you can go yep. back to the first game and find characters from the last expansion on the art and and on, on the forums of sentinels and multiverses people like piecing the story together and then ascension is, is, the, is the other one where every or magic the other does as well every expansion is just like here's another part of the world and so 
that there's that that's that that's a whole category of narrative almost as removed from mechanics like the yeah we, we call that world building yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and then there's the other types so i was i was a judge for the cardboard edison award this last oh yeah, yeah how'd that go uh, it was amazing it was, it was really incredible and the the game that uh, they've just announced the winners the game that came in third was called jane austen's dreams in which oh i can i can just picture it that's awesome <laughs> you are all playing so the game takes place inside jane austen's, austen's dream. head <laughs> and you're all playing heroines trying to impress her so much with your narrative potential that she writes you into a story oh that's awesome and like that in itself is kind of the world building side but then the mechanics just lined up so perfectly with it so i i was playing emma or someone i can't even remember now but i was playing emma and i'd spent the whole game building up this relationship with one of the scoundrel characters and then on literally the last turn another character married that character and took them out of the marriage pool and I was like, I will never forget that gaming experience. And so within the within the mechanics of the game, a narrative occurred. And this happens all the time, where you know you'll be like, oh, do you remember that game where in this, you know, five turns before the end, you totally changed heels? Or the resistance is another great example. Like they do it really well, where within the mechanics of the game or using the mechanics of the game more, it builds a narrative. And so yeah, for me, for me, there's there's two kind of sides of narrative, um, and one one is where the, where the game lets you go on a whole journey. And one is where the game tells you a story. I think I think they're both very interesting and valid, and they're, they're quite different. Yeah, I think there's actually a third where you're actually telling a story, where your your actual game action is telling stories. Oh which is, right, which yeah, is yeah. Different than say uh, Arabian Nights, Tales of the Arabian Nights, where you're actually just reading paragraphs. So um, like um, uh, Dungeons and Dragons would be an example of that. Kind of yeah, role playing ish. Yeah. Maybe. And and to a certain extent, you can get into that with. There are party games that let you do that. I mean, you think of something yeah. like a like a Dixit or or a Snake yeah, Oil, something like that, where you're you're putting something into the game that doesn't exist in the game itself, but you have to put your own personality into it to to have it come to life. And that's definitely you're creating a narrative with that. And, and so my number one example of this would have to be Simple Multiverse because it does the world building stuff, and then within every individual game, there's those highs and those lows and those twists and those turns and. It, it, it feeds you a narrative and then lets you create a narrative mechanically. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love a game like that that you can sit back after the game is over and you can recap it and it's like you're telling just a, just a yeah. story. Exactly. And you created yeah. that together. You, you did that. So, yeah, Sentinels of the Multiverse is certainly something that, that does that. And, uh, yeah, I'd have to agree with that one. What about you, Chris, though? What's one that you would pick that's not Sentinels? Well, he he. Um, Peter mentioned above and below that one definitely. I mean that that, that popped right out in my head. Um, but I think of I think of narrative, and I think of you know getting into it and and expanding a story. And this is this one's going to come way out of left field. But <laughs> there's a game that, that involved narrative that I always loved back in the day. We used to play it in college called Crack the Case. And you oh, would be trying okay. to, you try, it's a deduction game. And you're yeah. just trying to figure out how the crime was committed. And we would just spend hours because it's, it's basically yes and no questions, but your mind, it makes your mind work in a very narrative way because you're trying to figure this thing out. And it's a, a sense of accomplishment together when you can figure that stuff out. And that's, you know, that goes back to like, you know, boil it down and you've got like 20 questions type stuff. But really, you know, Crack the Case was just so much fun because it was just these crazy stories and you were trying to solve them and work together to do it. And there were great stories. So that one was more of a, you know, diving into the narrative versus, you know, creating your own or, or reading something specific. But uh, I really enjoyed that one. Cool. Um, 
on the note here about sandbox games, do you think there can be analog sandbox games? I think Feast for Odin is definitely the most sandbox game I've played. Okay. Uh, Brew, Brewcrafters is up there as well. And and they're not they're not pure sandbox in the way of Minecraft. Yeah. Because there are still like actions that you have to take on your turn. Uh, but during a game of, of Feast for Odin, like in, in in one game you might be this hunting tribe, in the other game you might never hunt at all and just spend your time building and trading. And the game never the game never forces you down a path. So I think that's 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 the most sandboxy game I've played. Uh, I think you could go more sandboxy, but I think past a certain point, like it, it's a physical limitation. Yeah. As much as anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Un- unless you look at a thousand blank white cards, uh, which which is <laughs> extraordinarily. Do you know that game? Yeah. That's that's very sandboxy. <laughs> <laughs> very yeah. Um, what about something like five hundred four or? Um, games like that where there's no particular rule set and the rules just kind of evolve or flux. I mean, is flux a sandbox game? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there for you guys to, to tell, tell me what you think. What do you think, Chris? Uh, It's tough because it's a changing game, but Mm -hmm. it's not sandbox in the way that, you know, that the user creates what they want and sits back and is like, I've just made something brand new. Um, so that's yeah. I mean, that's it's definitely a um, ever changing game. But I don't, I don't know a sandbox analog game. That that's you know uh, John on the chat mentioned isn't a deck of cards a sandbox game? And to a certain extent, it is because if you if you had a deck of cards, you could go anywhere from building a you know a house of cards to playing solitaire to playing something with lots of people. So that's that's your framework for a sandbox game is. You know, here's a box of components and cards and just do with it what you want. And it can be a game or it could be nothing at all. I mean, um, but yeah, the flux and any of that stuff, there there is an inherent rule set, whether or not it's something that stays the same or changes throughout the game. But, you know, each session, you know, is debatable, but um, that's, that's a tough one. Yeah. And here's a question about narrative. Do you guys like heavy handed narrative? Like reading the exact paragraph from above and below? Or do you kind of like, you know, maybe flavor text like magic where it gives you an inkling but not everything what do you think i i do like it a lot uh for me for me dead of winter is is my favorite example of read it off the card and then make a decision and the the dead of winter cards have genuinely like sent shivers up my spine i think they're very well written i think they're very tense and i think they're very 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 evocative Mm -hmm. and so i i really like I, i like those and i like them in above and below and the, the trouble is, uh, so the, the reason that I think crossroads word cards work is I was talking to Jonathan Gilmore and he was saying that he will he will still sit down and play his 200th game and come across a crossroads cards that, because he didn't write them specifically, one yeah. that he's just never seen before. Yeah. And uh, whereas, whereas above and below, I feel like after, after 10, 15 games, there is a chance you've, you know the whole book and you yeah. buy a second book or what. And so, yeah, for me, the, the struggle with those games is making them replayable as much as possible and crossroads for me is as close as anyone's gotten to that yeah and i think i think it really depends on the game itself too when you've got when you game but your game is hitting on all cylinders with the story and you know it's something like dead of winter or it's something like above and below where it's it's crafting a very specific narrative then you want to go along for that journey just like reading a good novel you want to see what's going to come out of it but with some games you know, especially the closer it gets to D and D, where you want to create your own um, characters and things, it's nice to have a little flavor to help you along, but you don't want it to interfere with what you're putting together in your own mind. So I think it really comes down to the game itself to see 
you know, there's some, sometimes you want to surrender yourself to the story and sometimes you want to be more active. That's really a great, depends on great way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, when I'm building story making games, it's, it's typically hooks. I build little hooks that you can hang your hat on, mm -hmm. but you don't have to, you don't have to follow it entirely. So there's, there's agency within the storytelling, but there's little hooks to guide you towards the outcome that the game is supposed to provide that curated experience. Right. And uh, John is just on fire at the moment. He makes another great point in the comments. He that, makes lots uh, of good points. Listen to John whenever John's on. He's, he's awesome. Uh, App-based content helps awesome. there. Yeah. And, and so like we, we'd say above and below, if they release a new version that had an app and, you know, he'd written 20 books worth and, you know, you could randomly pick it each time, then obviously we're moving away from pure board game there. But that, that for me would be one of the best integrations of an app into a game where it's just a promise of more content. Yeah. Know? And it's a really, it's, it's a wide open avenue for the future too, especially with a crossroads type game where there's the promise of expansions that are, you know, digital that would be really, really easy to get Absolutely. integrated into the game. Yeah. Okay, moving on. We're on to challenge. This is number four. Challenge is the game as an obstacle course. So like puzzle games, obviously very, very good. Overcoming obstacles can be rewarding in itself, but just to be safe, reward the player. Positive reinforcement lets the player know that he or she is doing the right thing. So what games scream challenge to you, Chris? Oh, <laughs> you know, it keeps coming back to puzzles for me. I, you know, thinking about the the you're working on it for a while, and then something unlocks as you put some things together. And I'm struggling to come up with uh, a game that that does that exactly. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to if you guys want to go on my brain, I'll engage and I'll figure it out. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. it's almost like I'm trying to solve a puzzle. You see? Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> very meta very fast yeah it did. Uh, what, about, it did. what about those escape room in a box games right where you're actually solving a puzzle to open locks and things like that so there's i mean there's that that's a very very blunt on the hit the nail on the head type example um puzzle games for me i i love that this is actually my realm of of why i engage with games is the mastery and challenge uh, end of things i like solving things in a clever way or feeling clever when i achieve an outcome uh, I find that very rewarding. And so for me, this can go uh, logic deduction games. I love logic deduction games. Mm -hmm. um, I also like games where the challenge is, like you were saying, in terms of a one against many, is actually hiding from the many or finding the one. I mean, yeah. those, are, those are other puzzles as well. Uh, and if you can see where the train the trail is going, but then we lose track and then we find it again by doing some awesome deduction. I think that's, that's to me, wonderful. So I like puzzle games a lot. Um, not yeah, necessarily I, to the point of just sitting there with a Rubik's Cube. I do enjoy that too, but, but you know. <laughs> uh, I, I think Sen and I, I think you and I, Sen, have that in common in that for me, like as much as I will rave about sensation, how important that is to me, for me, the reason I play games is to master systems. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge of mastering those systems uh, is is what brings me back to games again and again. And I'm going to mention Brewcrafters again because it's just one of my favorite games. That is a game in which once the initial like setup is done, there is no chance at all in that entire game. It's entirely deterministic based on what the players do. And it, and like I said, it's quite sandboxy in that you can extend yourself and then just try to catch up. And I find myself always doing that. So I will sort of set myself a challenge within the game there and just try to master it. But for me, I think I think the ultimate in like challenge games has got to be co-ops. Uh, 
No, that's an interesting. I was gonna, I was gonna say something almost the opposite. But let's hear what you got to say. Really? Uh, so for me, like the, the 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 reason to play Pandemic, for example, is to is to beat the game. Like that is the challenge. It is like, hey, right. this is a tricky game. Let's beat it. Um, to bring up Sentinels of the Multiverse again, they they rank all of their villains in difficulty. And once you've played for a while, you're gonna be like, look, let's pick the hardest villain with the the heroes that don't work well together, and let's beat that. Um, yeah. I, I used to play a lot of eighteen XX as well, eighteen thirty particularly. Mm-hmm. And that for me is is a challenge because oh, that's a whole challenge game. That's like three hours, seven hours of challenge. It's yeah, it's, it's we we play for about eight hours, about once every two weeks, and so I play that game a lot. The initial challenge was learning how the game works. We taught ourselves <laughs> from the rules, true, <laughs> and we played it incorrectly. I think eleven or twelve times before we finally worked out how it all worked. You know, you know um, that is not an uncommon story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or Mage Knight is the same thing. These these are just like these epic games of you know bring it on basically uh and, and that that's really appealing to me the the challenge of that um the lady in the tiger has a solo mode the the ken mayer game oh cool and it's it's very fun because it, it's hard like like any good solo game or even i think any good co-op is it's really hard to beat and you feel this enormous sense of accomplishment once you've beaten the challenge cool what was your opposite end of the spectrum oh it really wasn't actually that opposite now that i hear what peter is saying um but what i was going to talk about was kind of the puzzling alpha gamey part of of what i don't like about solo games sometimes is when you play with an alpha gamer who you know maybe it might be me and if if, if you're playing a solo game with an alpha gamer you're doing something Sorry, wrong. I, meant, I meant co-op game i meant co-op game i meant co-op you know well, it's, co-op it's, game with an alpha gamer if you're playing a solo game with split personalities one of them's the alpha and you just don't like that guy yeah that, that's a guy you don't play with um that's, well, that's a good point too and i was thinking you're talking about you know mastering systems and and that I was thinking of my six-year-old absolutely adores uh, gravity mates by Think Fun, where you have to build the things and drop the marble, and it goes through the different thing. And he loves that because it's it it stretches his brain. How do I get this to fall when all the things go different ways? So that's um, that's something he 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 loves. He could just play card after card of that, and then he'll ask for help every now and then. But he really wants to do it himself, which which helps him work out you know puzzles in his mind. Mm-hmm. One thing that's interesting is uh, the game concept yep. is the only game I can think of that has a, like a self-scaling challenge level. Because when you draw, when you draw a card in concept, there are nine different options. You can choose any of them. There's no like bonus points for choosing a harder one. Mm-hmm. But it, it's sort of the, the it's it's the only game I've seen where like every time you draw a card, you're like, look, how much of a challenge do I want to give myself? I could pick dog, which I can you know do in 20 seconds, or I can pick. Uh, the sound of music, which is going to take me a full like, well, actually, that's not, that's not a super hard example, but there is there are some of those concept things that I'm like, I've never heard of that. I'm going to see if I can get people to guess this thing by like just through it. And and so, yeah, I, I, a lot of co-ops will have a kind of a scaling difficulty that it'll allow you to do. But concept's the only competitive game, depending on how you play concept, of course, that lets you just be like, you know what, I'm going to set myself a challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I do that all the time with games anyways. Like, so if I'm playing a new game, I just ask whoever's teaching it, what's a good second place score? That's all I ask. Because <laughs> I know I'm probably not going to win, but I want to do okay. I want to understand that I've, in one play, mastered enough to get somewhere within, you know, what a second place score would be. Uh, and right. I, I feel that's a good way for me to judge whether or not I've mastered something, which is going back to the reward systems of mastery, uh, you know, just, you know, reinforcement, reinforcement, reinforcement. So how do we do that during games and how do we design that in to give the people who are seeking the challenge to let them know that, yeah, you've actually accomplished something. And I think that's with 
of our scoring systems and, and the feedback systems that way. Um, we're talking about uh, a bunch of stuff here online where people are talking about achievements. Achievement seems to be a big thing that I, I think we're going to get to it when we get past eight. Somebody might say, let's make a ninth one uh, <laughs> and make an achievement. But let's move on to five. Uh, five is fellowship. So this is games as a social social framework. Uh, playing games with friends is better than playing alone, unless you're apparently Sen playing a co-op. Um, <laughs> so they talk about um, you know party games, uh, massively multiplayer online games. Uh, in our games, it would be you know really big party games. Um, and they also talked about solo games often simulate the experience of fellowship by using a friendly AI. Oh, interesting, interesting. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? I asked you first because I know you won't have an answer sometimes. And it's fun wow. to watch you squirm. Is that how it is? Let's think about this. So fellowship, what's the, the, the most common thing that pops out is a co-op game in that in that case because fellowship is really, you know, you, you can say a fellowship is any multiplayer game that you sit down and play together. You're playing with other people. But when you talk about a fellowship, but, you know, my mind goes, of course, to Lord of the Rings, something and working together, something <laughs> co-op. So you've got your, you know, got your Forbidden Islands and your Pandemics and your all the other co-ops that are out there. Um, Does Calliope have a co-op game yet? Well, we've got something close. And actually, that's what I was going to bring up. So you can have straight co-op games where it's working together to solve something. Or you can have something where you're trying to think like everybody else. And that's what we have. We have Hive Mind, which just came right, out right, this right, past right. year with, by Richard Garfield. And that one is specifically about trying to think alike. So it's it's our, it's our entry in the party game, but it's the closest we have to a co-op. We have another co-op in, in development for a future game. Uh, but, but Hive Mind is all about if someone asks, you know, what are the two best amusement park rides, you have to not only think of what you think of the two best amusement park rides, but knowing the people sitting around with you, you gotta dip into that, you know, collective consciousness and be like, we went on a merry-go-round at one time. So I know that, that you know, they like the merry-go-round, you know, mm -hmm. so you're working together to do that. And then there's, in the end, one person loses because they get kicked out of the beehive and everybody else celebrates and that person walks off all sad. But <laughs> so it's a fellowship until someone gets booted and then you're like, Ooh, we're all great. And that person's terrible. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, that's that's our that's our take on, on fellowship is, is hive mind. But I, I mean, you know, co-op is obviously the way that my mind works. You know, thinking about fellowship, but but there's a lot of ways that you can work together to accomplish goals. And, and I think there's a lot of games these days that are cooperative to a point, and then they become competitive because there's one winner. You know, so you're working together until you're not basically. So those those semi co-ops. Peter, can we be frenemies and still have fe uh, fellowship? What do you do? <laughs> okay, so yeah, that, that is that is an excellent question because I was going to say I hadn't even considered co-op for this yeah. because my mind went straight to social deduction games. Ah, oh, um, yeah, yeah. Because like game, it's, uh, the description here says games as a social framework. And for me, by far the most interesting part of a social framework, so the resistance for me is just going to be like Avalon is the ultimate example of this because it, it has the trappings of a co-op where you have to work out who you're on the team with. And and so yeah, the, the interesting thing about Avalon is that you're looking around, being like, "Can I trust you?" Like that's the social framework of this. Um, I love social deduction games. I love bluffing games. Lady and the Tiger is is has got a two player bluffing game and a two to six player bluffing game within the box because I just I just adore uh, social deduction because for me, yeah, the, the interesting part is not only working as a team but looking at someone and being like, "Can I trust you?" Yeah. Like, like, like Sen was saying with his uh, with, with his kids, like Sheriff of Nottingham is a lot of. Uh, 
are you are you trying to pull one over or should I trust you here? And for me that I, I really like games that can't be translated into an app, which is yeah. sort of which is sort of a very specific thing. But like Witness is a co-op game, exactly four players, where you're basically playing telephone. Everyone has to whisper the clues around so that everyone gets the information. And you you can't do that as an app. It's just impossible. Um, concept you could do as an app, but it's really about like reading how frustratedly someone is being like, it's a red and white flag. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I played concept with my boyfriend and he was like, I don't know any countries that have a red and white flag, Russia. And finally <laughs> I was like, you're from Canada. Like it was just, uh, that, that yeah, was one of the, you can't translate the twitching eye yeah. to an app. You just can't quite get that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so fellowship for me is all about that, uh, that, that friction when people are rubbing up against each other and being like, I think he's lying. And then you have to try to convince the group or like, can I, can I, are we on the same team? Can I trust you? Um, again, Dead of Winter is, is just one of my favorites because it, it captures that perfectly because there is a chance that there is no trader at all. It's a trader mechanic game yes. with, with a chance of zero traders. So everyone spends the entire game tensely trying to work out whether to trust each other. And at the end, you're like, oh, we were just, we were playing a pure co-op this yes. entire game where we weren't sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, you, go, you go to like Werewolf and it's the same kind of thing. Exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's, there's there's a there's a, a kinship and a connection that happens in those types of games that is that you, it's it's really kind of magical and it's something you can't to a non gamer it's very hard to describe until they actually feel it and then and then it, it's it, their eyes light up and they realize yeah. that that there's something more to gaming certain games than they realize which is always a wonderful thing right. yeah and, and if you can get a game that the next game you're acting based on behavior from the first game <laughs> yes yeah, then, you've got, then you know you've got something in the fellowship realm right yeah, yeah. the game called empires coming out from whiz kids i think at essen and it's it's just a pure trading game it's a little bit like diplomacy but it plays in half an hour and it, it's a lot of, and so you can trade anything like literally every component in the game can be traded you can trade your player power you can trade your cards that you use to select stuff you can trade all of your goods you can trade everything and the designers specifically made it in mind where you can trade and you can just rip someone off and just entirely you know mess someone's plans up with the knowledge that next time you play you're not going to be able to trade with anyone like they, they designed it to be a game that you play for years Oh, that's great. And, oh, that's yeah. interesting. That's interesting. It, it's an incredible experience. Empires by the Stevenson brothers. Yeah. So for me, fellowship is is all about can I trust you, basically. Mm. So really not about fellowship at all. Well, yeah, that, I, I I love this list, but I sort of disagree with some of the labels because I'm like sure. I, I think fantasy yeah. should be experience or or escapism. Yeah. I think well, fellowship should just be socialization. Like that. And that's, that's what's interesting is that taking these some something that was applied to something else, they sort of fall into categories, but you're absolutely right. It, it needs a little bit of tweaking to make it just right for the analog world. Yeah. So let's move on then to Discovery. Discovery is games as uncharted territory, not just in the game itself, but maybe what you learn about yourself. Adventure games uh, are a good example, but any game that makes the player learn more about themselves as well can be thought of as Discovery. Wow, that's a that's a tall order. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about that, Peter? Discovery. Uh, so my, my mind immediately goes to the Forex kind of thing of like, yeah. or Mage Knight as well, where you, you go out yeah. and you're like, what am I going to reveal this time? Um, and that, that's a very literal, like, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the, what is it, the four card suits of gamers where there's hearts, clubs, spades, and diamonds. Uh, oh gosh. Um, diamond, uh, hearts is socialization. Clubs is, is winning and victory. 
spades is discovery and then diamonds is i think reward and I, i've done a few quizzes that uses that metric are, are you aware of this is this something that i'm just not brand new to me but that's really interesting yeah i, I wish i knew I it better just, i think you're just making it up just kidding. <laughs> which, which if you are you know nice job like, yeah, genius. I, I wish i knew it better so i could describe it better but i've done a few i've done a quiz at one point that, that talked about those four and i consistently came up as a discovery player and and for me when i when i pull out a game i want to no sorry i was not my, my friend was a discovery player i was a mastery that's one of them one of them is mastery and my friend was discovery and i was mastery so we would play the same game with each other over and over again and i would always pick the same faction because i wanted to get it like exactly right and for him the fun of the game was always picking a different faction so he would have gone through you know if there were 10 factions in the box he'd have gone through nine while i was still on the first one again and again just trying to master it um and then and yeah the, the idea of, of of learning about yourself as discovery is weird and interesting and i'm, I'm sort of I, I have no thoughts on that but i'm curious to hear what you guys say because i want to mm. learn okay chris what do you got to say on that if anything well the first thing when i when i first read that i i thought more of an internal thing and actually i was okay. thinking of a game that peter mentioned a little bit ago which was concept that's right. the first thing i thought of when i was thinking of you know when first off unexplored territory you know concept is a giant whiteboard with some pictures on it so it's really about how do you make yourself uh clear to other people so you learn a little bit about how you communicate with people through concept you know yep. both well in every way i mean it's it's in you know with pictures it's through the way that you enunciate certain things and you you, you quickly build a common language and so you discover this yes. language as you're building it that's absolutely right. So, and it, yeah, there's, so you have to figure out, you know, what makes sense to people, what doesn't make sense to people very quickly. And, and you may think in your mind, something is as clear as a bell and you realize very quickly that, no, this is not, this is not easy. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it needs, you need to go a completely different route. And so that's, that's where my mind immediately went with discovery. Neat. Because my mind goes to like tile land games, like uh ant decker or acroteria or something where you're actually discovering the world as you turn over the of uh, the tiles and whatnot uh but i can totally see how it could be about discovering about your own skills your own self uh and so games like mysterium games where you're communicating mm -hmm. even code names where you're like trying to figure out discover about yourself or other people like what words what do they put together what connections do they make um you know associatively and i think that's that's a really interesting point that there's a lot more to discovery than just the physical act of revealing a card or a tile that makes games interesting yeah. uh, and engaging beyond, um, you know, everything. Well, it's, also, it's also fun when you have a game that as you reveal it, you, you hone your strategy, the more information you get on a game as, as you're revealing certain things until, it, you know, maybe there's a finite number of, you know, places to discover. Once those are all, dis you know, revealed, now it's time to buckle down and figure out your strategy for the game. But everyone's doing the same 4X, thing yeah. because it's you know very yeah very four X. My uh, my long languishing game City of Gears has that because there's only nine tiles that eventually when they're all flipped over, people know exactly what they can do to. Okay, 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 okay. So one day Chris will have a show entirely dedicated to crying about City of Gears. <laughs> <laughs> Because my, my heart bleeds for you, man, about that dumb yeah. game. Not dumb game, but, you know, about the game and what happens to it. So, anyway. One, one, but it, it existed only so that it could be used for the discovery, the conversation we're having <laughs> right now. 
that's really this is this is the apex of its existence. I can write it off now. It, it, no, it, I'm pretty it, sure there's there's more life in City of <laughs> One one thing that really scratches the discovery itch, I think, is incredibly modular games because you might not be discovering new new cards or new tiles within the game, but the game like, I'm going to use Dominion as, as a great example. Sure. The game of Dominion is discovering weird combinations between cards that you've never seen. Yeah, before. it's yes. exactly what I love yes. about Magic, right? Yeah, yeah, Mad Magic's a great example, or um, or even even something as simple as Kingdom Builder, where there's I think is there nine different victory conditions and two come at each, two, three yeah, come at each, it, each game. Yeah, very yeah. yeah, yeah, and then there's a bunch of expansions, right? So right, yeah, well, even something and, even something like Circle the Wagons that's up on. Oh, you know, that right game now, is yeah, just amazing. I've heard nothing but good things. I've that that is play, the but... single best 18-card game ever made. And I yeah, say that as the... someone who is currently making an 18-card game. <laughs> but this, it intrigues me because it has that. In the middle, there are victory conditions, just like Kingdom Builder, where you're only going to win if you if you satisfy these. And these are going to change every game. So it's gonna the flavor of the game is always going to be different. And I, I think that that... That idea, if it's executed well, is is fantastic. I I, th I think discovery is really appealing to combo players. Yes. Uh, yeah. And and the thing about most tabletop games, which differentiate it from CCGs, is that in a CCG you'll discover the thing and then put it in your deck and play it over and over. Whereas table the tabletop experience is more often about building uh, of, of like them randomly coming out and then you discovering them mid game as as you as you draw them or as you build them or stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, and how you handle, how you can maximize a situation. That's that's the other thing because you just never know, you know, uh, how it's going to develop. So the better prepared you are to maximize every situation, the better you'll be, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good point yeah. about deck building versus some other styles of, of gameplay where, if you're deck building, you're leaning into that strategy. You know, there's a high percentage of that strategy coming out, um, and that combo being created. Whereas most board games, you're not able to direct that so much so you have to play a little bit more conservatively i guess and that's interesting yeah and so you discover a lot of stuff about yourself I, I well actually i mean one of the one of the key things if you ever read into the literature on magic the gathering is things like player psychographics and yeah yeah T timmy about, and jimmy and yeah, yeah, spike. spike learning how you play dictates things about your style and your deck building composition and all these metrics that rosewater and team have kind of looked into um, and, and it's it's really neat. We're actually the reason why I, honestly the reason why the eight um, kind of fun came up is because I asked a question about uh, personality and fun and engagement, what you find engaging in games. And somebody else was asking a question about the Myers Briggs um, personality test, and I said, why can't we link the two together in some way? Not that I'm a particular fan of Myers Briggs, but that um, there's interesting correlations between personality, uh, which is more, we think, more genetic right now than it is uh, choice. Your personality is more of a genetic basis, more epigenetic, more likely. But anyway, uh, and then um, your play style or your, what you like out of what you find engaging about games or the eight styles of fun might be a really interesting way to actually design really catered games or gated game experiences oh, to right. those specific types mm -hmm. of people. So how do we link all that together? Um, moving on from discovery, uh, expression. So games as a soapbox. Expression comes from the rules of the games and its dynamic sandbox games, such as Minecraft, is all about expression, but every game has it. Ever tried to break the game or hack it? Self-expression is a very important part of human nature. All right, so self-expression. 
how do analog games allow us to be expressive? What do you think? So I'm going to bring up, uh, I'm going to say that expression is probably up there with sensation as one of the most overlooked aspects of fun by game designers. And I'm going to, I'm going to use a very, very, very unpopular game within the game community. Cards Against, Cards against Humanity. Humanity. <laughs> exactly. Like that game is about 95% expression. Yeah. And, and that is particularly interesting because it gives you the tools to express yourself in a very limited way which gives you the freedom to express yourself in ways that you maybe normally wouldn't. Right. And, and so like the tagline is a game for horrible people because people can be like, oh, I think this is funny. And by saying the cards made me do it, it allows them to express themselves in a way that they normally can't. Much, much like you were saying with, with your kids, they want to yeah. play a game where they can screw over dad and steal from mum. This is, to, to you know, it's a game for horrible people. They, they fully embrace that. This is a game where you can do stuff that you can't normally do. It's outside the norm of what's socially acceptable, and the game allows you to do that. So for me, yeah, the biggest game for expression would have to be Cards Against Humanity. Okay. Chris, what about you? I, I, that's actually the first thing that came to my mind, too, and it's, it's, um, it's not popular in the gaming world, but if you're talking about a non-gamer who gets to play it, again, you know, one of my favorite things is introducing non-gaming folks to the hobby and mm -hmm. as much as we don't want to say that's a good gateway game it does widen people's perspective as to what games can do because if they realize it's not monopoly <laughs> it's exactly if they, well and, and the thing is if it can cause them to have um you know running jokes and and gives yeah. them an, an outlet to to express themselves in ways that they wouldn't usually you know they get together maybe they have some wine together with some friends and they talk and then they go home but they introduce a game that causes them to have raucous laughter and all this now you know for some of us we're like i can take about 20 minutes of that and then i would just want to run for the hills but but for a lot of people it's eye-opening so i think i absolutely agree with that i think that it's it's a it's a great way for them to express themselves in a way that, that that's unexpected and hopefully opens their eyes to a bigger world of gaming out there yeah i'll just use one of my examples sorry uh mine would be uh oh but wait there's more would be the one that we made that is you know allowing you to get out there and, and express yourself not as free form uh because it's it's couched within the idea of uh, infomercial uh, so I think there's a lot of games that actually do it, but they're more in the social realm. I wanted to ask you guys what you think about um, expression in a game from perspective of things like uh, house rules or things like uh, blinging out your components and even things like avatars and representation in games. Is that expression? Is that something we need to think about, consider when we're designing or publishing games? Thoughts, Chris? That's, that's an interesting question. And it actually makes me think of something that I, that's becoming more and more popular these days, which is the, the roll and write games. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to watch some people just print out sheets and they'll just play the game. And then there's some people who go and they laminate the stuff and they've got dry erase. And there's people who create like really interesting things based on what's essentially a print and play game. Um, and these are folks who just like, just like the people really bling out their print and play files. These are people who are trying to express themselves by, by taking a, a core concept and making it something different or better than it used to be. They're not changing the rules but they're, they're putting their stamp on a game in a way that, that is unique and different. Mm -hmm. Peter, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, for, for me, there's a lot of overlap between what Chris is talking about and sensation, which is that people 
sure. want, to, want to signal, hey, I am serious about games or I care about games by like, to, to bring up Brewcrafters for the 14th time, I bought the, <laughs> the Meeple Sauce custom little ingredients things. Of course, of which, course you did, because they're cute. Which, which are mechanically worse. Uh, the, the game is designed so that the 12 cubes fit exactly into the into the space where you can only fit 12 things. Oh, the yeah, they are. Ones, they would make it worse. They would yeah. totally make that game worse. <laughs> they make the game worse. I still love playing with them. Like, that's a sensation thing. Yeah, yeah for and sure. And also, it's, to a certain extent, I think it is an expression thing. It's me being like, you don't know how much I love this game. <laughs> I and will now, make this game worse for me. <laughs> yes. That is how uh, much I love this game. <laughs> the, the, the other thing I'm thinking of for expression is your Pictionary kind of... Um, oh, Mysterium. Mysterium is a great example in, in which, it, again, it gives you limited tools with which to express an idea and then rewards you for doing yeah. that. Yeah, and, you can get a lot of things that way, like, you know, starving art or fake artists in New fake York. Fake artists in New York, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that, yeah, that style of, of, uh, of, of limited tools to express yourself so you can... I'm going to say you can feel creative even if you're not, and that's not that's not disparaging towards the game or the people because some people are less creative than others, which is totally fine, um, or, or less good at expressing their creativity. And so, by giving them people those limited tools, it allows them that sensation of expression in a in a very controlled way, which I think that's, is super- that's a great point. Yeah, that's what a lot of people say about like, but wait, there's more. It's like, well, I can just be funny by even just playing funny cards as yeah, opposed exactly. to have to say anything. Yeah, and it, like it does. Talk, you like, know, and expression can be. You know, if you play something like News 11, mm-hmm. you know, or if you guys have played Guerrilla Marketing, yep. um, the upcoming game like that, you can, it's, it's again, going back to what we talked about before, injecting yourself into how the game comes across to other people, you know, putting yeah. your own personality into it. Yeah. So, like, when I play Mysterium and I'm the ghost, I am the best slash worst ghost ever. Like, I talk like a ghost and I make <laughs> noise. And, and, but I, and the, we play with a rule, and I don't know if it's the real rule. This is just what, <laughs> this is just how we play. Like, I won't, you can't, you can't show anybody your dreams. You have to express it. Oh, really? You have to, you have to tell them. And I saw, and I, in my dream, I saw a red balloon hovering over an animal and, and what, you know, that kind of thing. And it's actually super fun. Yeah, I was gonna say that's definitely not the official rule, but I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah, play with it next time yeah, I play. Yeah, it kind of it, it really antes it up a little bit, um, makes it harder. So I mean, maybe more ravens, but whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. that's so raven. <laughs> that's so raven. <laughs> you are so stuck in the '90s. Um, <laughs> uh, submission. Okay, last one. This one. This one is the one that I don't understand quite well, but I guess um, you know, games as mindless pastime would be the the idea here. Submission. The word doesn't cut it for me. Um, but it says, this relates more to grinding or farming, quote unquote. Most games have some form of this. Submission can also be thought of as the opposite of challenge. If a game is challenging all the time, players may be turned off. Complaining that the game is too hard or cognitive overload um, is a sign that the game doesn't have enough submission for the player. Some hardcore games can be thought of having less submission or none of this. What do you think about that? So I, I agree that submission is a weird term for this. Yeah. Um, I think I think they're using it in the terms of like just yielding to the forces of nature, and, well, and, like, and I just guess letting yourself with be. The, with an AI like a video game, that's entirely true. You could just let it go. Well, to a certain extent, I think that. So this this is again one of the, one of those areas. I, I, I like this one is, is particularly interesting to me because I think that it's one of the things that uh, designer game designers don't like as much uh which is that a lot of people will play a game to have something to do with their hands while they hang out yeah and if you give them significant choices that is actually overwhelming for them and they will enjoy themselves less 
Yes. And so there, there's a group I know in Sydney who, who love the game Flux and Chrononauts and Munchkin and all that kind of stuff yeah. because the game does not offer them significant choice, which from a from a pure game design point of view is like what that's that's the opposite of a good game. Right. It right. means that they can they can play a game and, and just like uh, with expression, you know, games can give you the feeling of creativity without needing you to be creative. This can give you the feeling of of winning without having to outplay people. Right. It can give you the feeling of playing a game without having to play a game in a sense. Uh, and, and so yeah, for me this this is all about flux and munchkin and and, and all that kind of uh, game, games where you just you're just there and you're doing the thing and the choice might be obvious and that is relaxing <laughs> and that is a right. pleasant experience. Um, yeah. in, in terms of designer games, which I realize that those games are technically designer games, but in terms of kind of more more gamer games, yeah, uh, th this for me is, is your lanterns kind of feel. It's a very peaceful thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's, I, it's I was very... going to say um, Lotus for me is that yeah game. yeah I can Lotus. play it I don't care if I win or lose I'm just occupying my hands while I'm talking over coffee with somebody right that's so that's so this is actually uh, an area I live in quite a bit because, yeah 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 I would I would think so so roll for it um, if you ask a gamer they'll be like that's is that even a game <laughs> what, what would what would Travis say about it. Yeah, yes, Mr. Mr. Travis Chance telling me it was half a game. Uh, that is, and I <laughs> to never your face. to to my face at a urinal. Uh, <laughs> um, just to be clear, you guys were facing each other at a urinal. That's the that, that's the mental image I've got here. We that was that that was I've never seen Travis ever turn red faced and not know what to say. That's the only time I've ever seen him speechless. That was, a, that was a funny story, man. It's yeah. Good story. Um, but that's that's the whole thing. So I so roll for it exists to give people something to do together when they don't want to play something heavier. It's, it exists as a family game, and that's when I think of you know the mentality gamers have towards roll for it. It's, it may not even be a game, but it is a filler game. It is it could be considered a gateway game. It can you know if you break it down, it's something that that people can play together and enjoy themselves, move on. They never have to really think too much about it or even think about it after they're done with it, but it's an activity that they can do together. And I think, you know, a lot of the games that we, that we do for Calliope are, are in that, that filler place. I mean, Sorrow is a, is a very, very simple to learn and play game. Mm -hmm. There's not a ton of choices to it, but it's a, it's a, it's an activity that is a palate cleanser um, or something between the bigger things. And because sometimes depending on who you're playing with, it's really hard to play two or three brain meltingly hard games in a row and and still feel okay afterwards. It's nice to have that little palate cleanser somewhere in the middle. And I and that's you know, I'm not saying that Calliope is all, you know, a bunch of roll for it level games. We have we have things that are thinkier and do more things than that. But those games have an absolute place in the world. And I think, you know, being on here, it's it's important to have games that aren't um, that aren't going to cause you to tax your brain all the time. I, I think so too. It's like a, having a sorbet. You're yeah. having sorbets. And another factor for submission, I think, which is which is worth considering, is that if you play it enough, any game can become that for you. True. Uh, so, so the lady in the tiger currently on Kickstarter for another one hour and fifty minutes uh, is <laughs> is a great example of a game where the first few games you play, it's a bluffing game, and there's there's. It's not, it's not a lot of rules because it's quite a simple, it's a, it's a 10, 15 minute game. Uh, but once you've internalized those rules, you can, you can play while chatting. You can, you can do stuff without having to be 100% focused on the game once you internalize those rules. 
and then as as you as you gain more and more like I'm going to bring up Brewcrafters. Um, I can set up Brewcrafters and play that at 3 a.m. after a long day because I know all the systems so well that while I still have to make decisions, it's not taxing decisions. I, uh, maybe twice in an entire hour-long game, I'm sitting there being like, oh, what do I want to do right now? This is... But for most of the game, it's like, cool, I'm going to go here, I'm going to get my yeast. Cool, I'm going to go here, I'm going to brew this beer. I'm going to upgrade my thing. And it, it's it's not autopilot exactly, but it's not taxing. It's it, I think it's this idea of submission... And so, yeah, any any game can become that. The speed with which it becomes that depends on how much you've played the game. Yeah, and I think a lot of the, your your comment before about rule and rule and rights, Chris, may also fall into here um, because the decisions aren't taxing. You usually have like one or two or three decisions at the most at once, right? It's not. It's combinations of dice. It's not how will this matter? You know, seventeen steps in the future, and what is this other player going to do to affect me? it's not as deep a game but it's oddly satisfying and lots of people are are really liking them for that purpose of that palette cleanse of that you know give my brain a little bit of an enema clear out all the stuff from you know 18xx and let's play this and then we'll go to you know do eclipse or something right so right. i think i think you're right there is a place for all of these you know all these things about, that we think are fun now uh, one of the things that isn't in here that a lot of people on the feed were talking about would be you know quote unquote number nine um not the yoko ono thing uh but <laughs> when um achievement so it's not quite the same as as challenge but they were equating it more to like achievements on say xbox or something like that. Do you think games provide achievement? Should they provide achievement in a palpable form? Um, do you have any examples of games that provide achievement that aren't just, you know, the win, but are little like micro rewards in game oh, that yeah, help yeah. you want to keep on playing? So as think, as a sorry, you say, say brew crafters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can say brew crafters before he said brew crafters. Yeah, that's the whole thing. I'm gonna get in there before he does. You know, brew crafters does this amazing. Well, I, no. I believe that this show has the highest uh, brewcrafter to any other game ratio. <laughs> uh, Have you guys played Brewcrafters? It's amazing. Okay. Um, no, That's was, the title was, of this. The title of this podcast <laughs> is "Have you played Brewcrafters? It's amazing." I, I was going to yeah. say that for me, oh, <laughs> Kevin, who's my Brewcrafters partner, he's the one who I play it with over and over again. Has just popped into the chat. Um, I, I'm going to say that the. Oh, tell you what I was gonna say. Oh, yeah. So as as a developer, there's actually that something comes up a lot. So I, I go to a lot of prototype cons, I play a lot of prototypes. And I'm gonna call them like micro achievements, something like that, is is something that a lot of game designs in their prototype stages are missing, which is that you need to tell people, hey, you are doing a good job. Partially because it's fun, but also partially so that they know that their strategy is working. And so I've I've played probably at this point more than half a dozen games where you don't get any indication of score until the very end, and then you score everything, and and that that fails as a as a game because it I mean first of all achievement is fun I think that absolutely belongs on this list as number nine, uh, but also yeah without without that context you just have no idea if you're doing well and that's why so many games will have a scoring track because you could just you could just score everything at the end but if you're Every time you do anything you're scoring, that is fun. And it says, hey, look, you are you can now compare yourself to the other players. You don't want to do that entirely because then halfway through the game, someone just said, is, is there a drinking game where you take a drink every time someone mentions Brewcrafters? Um, you don't want to have a game which is entirely scored during the game because then if someone is winning by too much, then you just can't do anything. You're just like, well, I'm out of the game now and we still have half an hour to go. 
But yeah, I, I, I think that achievement within the game is, is so important. Uh, the, the micro achievements that Sen mentioned, just to give you a sense of how well you're doing and also because it's fun. So yeah, I, I, can, I can think of very few games that don't do that, that don't give you some form of victory points or achievement during the game because i think that's that's an it's a very important part of game design yeah and i think it's i think it's separate than challenge i think it's it's oh i absolutely think so yeah it's that feedback system that we need in order to understand more about the game chris what games do you have or think of when you think about you know little achievements little micro rewards that help everybody get along or, or progress through the game in a meaningful way where they might actually just get a few of those and think i did a good job as opposed to winning the game yeah, and see, we actually, that's one of the things that we're working on right now. We have a, we have a design that is, is basically a race. And then what's difficult is when you have a game that's a race to a specific thing, and it doesn't really have signposts along the way, and it is sort of hidden. It's, you know, you're playing a game until somebody hits a certain thing. Um, and along the way, you're trying to score basically so that at the end, if, if more than one person during the round wins, you'll have a tiebreaker. We have to make sure that it still feels satisfying, like it wasn't, well, I just wasted my time playing a game, you know, and, and there was nothing I could do to control because I didn't know how I could have affected it in the end. Um, so uh, that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting point. I was, as I was listening, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it and I'm taking mental notes because I'm like, okay, I'm going to make sure we get this really hard because I want Peter to buy the game and talk about it and talk about Brewcrafters with love in his heart. If you can make a game that replaces Brewcrafters, I, I, I will pimp that on every podcast I go on. That, that sounds good. <laughs> there you go. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a game about uh, making uh, uh, church seats. It's called Pewcrafters. So, <laughs> uh, it'll be right up your alley. <laughs> That should be a game. That really should be. It should be a game of not knowing when to kneel or stand. That's that's what that game is all about. It's it's a game about the dregs at the bottom of of a witch's cauldron. It's called Brew Afters. There you go. (laughs) Um, I want to I want to mention Scythe as well because Scythe. uh, Again, I I think Scythe is just one of the best game experiences ever created. Slash, I think it's one of the best games ever created. And I think one thing that Scythe does better than almost any other game is it doesn't just say, "Hey, you've gotten points." it makes every single achievement that you get also upgrade your engine. So to use Dominion as a counterexample, also a brilliant game, but every time you get victory points in Dominion, you're slowing yourself down. You're clogging your deck up. You're, 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 you're doing better by making yourself do worse, which is a, a great catch-up mechanic and a lot of games use it that way. Scythe has done the opposite. Every time you get closer to victory in Scythe, you're also improving your engine. And that, that duality is... Yeah, I, I think the reason that Scythe is so popular and, and so good is because it it is such a player-positive experience, not only in the sensation regard, not only in the discovery regard, not only in the different modular things, but also because every time you upgrade your components, you get closer to victory, or to put it differently, every time you get, get closer to victory, you upgrade your engine, and it, it doubles down on that reward, which is deeply satisfying or fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, okay, so you know what, guys? It is actually after four. We've sat here for a while talking about all this cool stuff. I'm so glad you could be part of the conversation. I'm so glad that everybody on the feed was contributing and helping us unpack all this information about the eight types of fun. Uh, and that might actually be nine. I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I think we've all come to some agreement that there are many, 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 many different ways that we engage as human beings with games and that one isn't necessarily better than the other and that 
Sometimes you need different ones, even when your main thing is challenge, you might need some submission to get ready for your next challenge game, right? And that game companies like the ones we have in front of us, we have Jellybean Games and we have um, Calliope Games, where they might actually make games that are of a certain type of fun. So you might know to go to a brand to seek out a certain type of engagement. If that's what you're looking for, and really, that's what branding is about in a lot of ways is what are we best known for? And so, uh, Peter, the last question to you is what is Jellybean Games known for from the eight styles of fun? What would you think? Sensation. Sensation. Our games are sensational. Just like me. I'm sensational. <laughs> and Chris Leader. Chris, what is Calliope's big appeal from the eight styles of fun? Um, I would say it is a uh, even balance of all eight. <laughs> no, no I, actually, I would say I would actually put it into the into the fellowship mold because I think we exist. You talked about different publishers being there for different reasons. Yep. We we exist to try to fill in that gateway filler spot. So a little bit of submission, I guess, but I hate that word. But um, we exist to bring people into the hobby and hopefully get more people playing. So it's all about fellowship. It's all about getting people together to sit and, and actually do something together. Cool. Very, very cool. Um, for those of you out there who like word games, if you ever get a chance to see Ian Moss's game, Kerning, take oh, a good so look good. at it. It looks so cool. I love it's word incredible. games, and I love the idea of the transparent cards and things like that. So, uh, if you know, maybe Calliope is looking for a word game, or you know, maybe Jellybean Games is looking for a word game. I, I would love to pick that game up, but it is just—it doesn't work for our market of of kids at all. Like, I know. Yeah. It, it's it's brilliant, and I think it actually is the first word game I've ever played that I'm like, there is literally no word game out that is even similar to this. Exactly right. It's so good. I played it at, at uh, Unpub. Unpub. It, it, yeah. Blew me away. Um, do we have time for me to make one final point? Yeah, of course. Always time. So, I, I, throughout this entire list, I was thinking about the rise of legacy games, which I guess everyone in the industry is a bit like, oh, legacy games are a bit over it. But I think that if, if you look at why legacy games have exploded in the way they have, it's because they're not only fulfilling a lot of these, they are like number one in all of these. So, we made hey, yeah. in sensation, you're ripping up the cards. Fantasy, less so. Narrative, I think they are the king of narrative. I think it is hard to get a better narrative game than a legacy game. Uh, ch so challenge and fantasy and fellowship. Oh, fan fantasy and challenge as much as any other game. Fellowship, you're, you're encouraged to play through the games with the same group over and over. Again, I think they just master fellowship. Discovery, like th these are not things that they're good at. These are things that I think legacy games are the best at. I think that they are the best thing of narrative i think they are the best thing of fellowship i think they are the best thing of discovery i think the way you can customize the things is a really great example of expression and uh, and, and achievement absolutely like both the achievements within the game and then every game if it's a if it's a competitive one will have a winner if it's co-op you will all win so i think that legacy games are not just popular because they're the new or because they're cool i think they are actually the best at like five of these of these nine categories in, in their own way. And even if even if you go outside of legacy proper and look at like the Harry Potter deck building game, uh -huh. and what that did that was introducing new things along the way. So look at that as legacy light or whatever you want to say. But that model, it's it's strange to me that that a lot of the game world is over it already because it introduces so many ideas that if people want to take that baton and run, could really expand and broaden what it means to be a game absolutely 
Yeah, I, I think that this this list is useful for identifying why something has taken off and you could conceivably design to it. Like if you sit down and try to make a game that nails all nine of these things and, and you actually manage to, you know, even even half of them, I think it's hard not to make a hit in a sense. <laughs> yeah. Not to make a game that really potential audience is huge at that point. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so and so maybe that's what we should be doing is looking at this kind of style guide almost to say, did we hit that? And how hard did we hit it? And is it okay to miss out on some of them but not others? What are what are the what's quintessential for the tabletop experience? What experience are we like we talk about curating experiences a lot when we talk about game design as modern games. Uh, and what are we doing with these types of, of indicators when it comes mm -hmm. to curating that game? Does, you know, um, does Scythe really hit all of them? Does Suro hit all of them? And if not, which ones? And why doesn't it matter for that particular game, right? So yeah, I, think, I think we've got a lot to think about, which is great. So thank you again. Thank you so much to Chris and Peter for coming on in the midst of their campaigns, actually at the tail end of one of them. It's over <laughs> a couple hours. Uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully, with Dylan and uh, Daryl. Oh, Daryl might not be here because he's at uh, a conference. And uh, I will not be at that conference, so I will be here. Uh, and we'll take a look at some other stuff. Maybe we'll get into psychographics next week. Um, Daryl, not being a psychologist, does not like to talk about that stuff as much as I do. <laughs> so we'll, we might get into that next week. But thank you very much for coming. It was great to see a lot of you guys on the feed, even Ian, even though you're late. Um, so uh, <laughs> next time, we'll talk about something. I don't know what, but we'll pick something. and We'll get some guests, and it'll be awesome fun. And in, in half an hour, I'm going to be live streaming the end of my Kickstarter. So go to theladyofthetiger.com yeah, so if you want to talk to me more. Yeah, yeah, please do. And Chris, and uh, jump on Dicey Peaks. We're we're getting close to eighty percent. We'd love to see uh, people jump on and help us climb the mountain. So it's a great, great game. It fits a lot of these, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of these uh, buckets that we're talking about. Who did the art for that, by the way? Andy uh, Hepworth, Andrew Hepworth, who lives yeah, in yeah, yeah. Scotland. Um, cool. He's he's done a lot of fantasy art. He's a, a really really cool guy. He does uh, a lot of art, and he's our new art director. And he was going to outsource it, but he actually loved the game so much that he's like, I really want to draw yetis. I want to have some fun doing this. So he did. Come on, this who doesn't amazing... want to draw yetis? Yeah, yeah, right. So he did this amazing art of all these different hazards and things happening up the mountain, and, and he took full charge of it. It was it was really like. In one day, he had sketches because it just he he exploded with creativity. So he wanted, to and I think that's that's a really good sign, to be honest, of a game when it inspires others, right? So yeah, cool. yeah and, and we're that's really great. really happy with it. We're uh, we're moving we're, we're we're moving up the mountain, but we'd love some help. So if anyone wants to jump on, I am going to back that right now. Yeah. Oh, see, Peter, you, you are the best, and and I'm going to go color my beard blue. Right after this. <laughs> All right, cool. We'll see everybody next week on the Meeple Syrup Show. Uh, no outro. We're not going to sing. We'll just say goodbye. Bye bye. <laughs>